Thank you for joining us in Season 2 of the Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Joel Shalom. How about it? It's post-sabbatical Eric. How are you? Post-sabbatical, pre-high holidays, current podcaster. I'm good, man. How are you? Are you sure? <laughs> I'm, tremendous. No, I am. I am good. There it's, is uh, a having... So I've been doing pastoring for 16 years. I had one sabbatical. And there is a post-sabbatical grief when it's over. I... I don't know about you, but there's like a, ah, oh, damn moment on day one after it. So how are you? Yeah, really? I mean, it, it was for sure a jolt. I mean, it, and especially with what's going on in the country. I mean, my our synagogue, like everywhere else, has had to completely reframe our guidelines and policies for the upcoming high holidays. Um and I needed to be in those conversations even before my sabbatical ended. So there was kind of a ramp up. Um, but, the, you know, the truth is, it, it's kind of like what, what I, it, my, when I'm my best self, I think about paying taxes. Like nobody likes paying taxes, but if you're able to pay taxes, that means you have a job and an income and that's a blessing. And so similarly, coming back from sabbatical means that I got a sabbatical, which is also similarly a wonderful thing. So it, it, I can't complain too much. But yes, definitely a transition. And what are you doing with all those words you produced per day? Right now, honestly, nothing because I'm so you know busy with the high holiday stuff but my plan is once the holidays end and things slow down to a normal in quotes what i i don't know what that will look like um my hope is to go back to it and now at this point I, it needs to be seriously edited and i probably want 10 15,000 more words in there um but there's definite some serious editing going on i, I find when i write because i'm so used to writing sermons and i don't know Joel if you've had this experience trying to write a book I like what I'm writing, but it's in a sermon modality. And I don't want it to be in a sermon modality, but I almost can't help myself. I am very accustomed to writing for oral presentation now. And I I craft the language on the paper or the screen in such a way that I will know what I'm trying to say and how I'm trying to say it. But if a stranger were to read it, they would think I'm terrible at writing. It means something to me, the little codes and symbols and bolds and dashes and dots and stuff I put in there. It tells me the emphasis I'm trying to put. But you don't have that that gift. You don't have that uh, that option when you're writing to be read. And an editor will suck out of you what you're trying to say and make you say it in a way that is grammatical, uh, grammatically correct, as well as expressive. Or it could be an audiobook. <laughs> I I love it. Malcolm Gladwell's most recent book, he did the print and the audio together. And I thought, yes, I'm just listening to the audiobook. I'm not even going to read the real one because it's so good. Do I need to read that? I probably yes. do. Yes, you Yeah, do. I love him. Yes. Do you do. listen to his podcast? Yes, of course. Revisionist History. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I need to add that to my list. There's so many good ones. And this season um, is good. And so is Religion. That's a good one. I hear that it's a halfway decent podcast and we're approaching <laughs> 2,000 downloads. Oh, my gosh. 
Unbelievable. That's amazing. So, uh, what are we talking about today, Joel? <laughs> well, if we are going to obey our plan, we're talking about obedience and what it means to, as people of faith, to believe something so much that it is from God, a command of God, a direction of God, that we obey it at sometimes at great personal risk or sometimes at risk those we love or sometimes at, at great social price where the society around us rejects us or hates us for it. What does obedience of God look like in the scriptures and and our resistance to those stories, the way we like, ooh, did he really have to do that? Is God did God really say that? A lot of the obey texts uh, are problematic for for us. And and I'll go. I don't want to say further, but um, certainly for Reformed Jews, I think the the concept of obeying period is difficult. In that. There's a reason that liberal Jews find the moral commandments, and in Judaism there is a distinction, uh, uh, commandments between a person and another person on one hand, and then a commandment between a person and God on the other, and there is a distinction. Um, but ultimately, Jewish tradition says that we need to do all of them, all 613, the, the ones that make sense and the ones that don't make sense. The thou shall not kills as well as don't combine wool and linen on your body at the same time, right? And so Reformed Judaism, and I, and I think this is also true for rabbis, Reformed, my, my friends and colleagues, we have a much easier time with those moral commandments between a person and a person. Um, then we do some of these ritual commandments for the simple purpose of, well, God said so. That doesn't, that doesn't work all the time or even some of the time from a modern liberal sensibility. And again, liberal is not politically liberal. It's religiously liberal. So what are some of the texts where obedience to God, what we believe God is saying, um, are the metaphors that, when applied to current life, boy, we just reject them as problematic. Hey, I think you five. I, I get to pitch you the softball here. You love this. You love this story. You're bringing it up all yeah, Joel, the time, I'm, right? I'm I, just worried you're not. I, I hope you get some words in today because I, I definitely have a lot to say about this. But I'm as sure the podcast editor, I always ensure we're about fifty fifty. <laughs> You're like the the editor of the Torah that puts Leviticus in the middle as a Levite. <laughs> and remind me at the end of today to tell you about my JEDP sermon on Sunday. Oh, that might have to stay in the show. That could that could be the after show topic. Uh, provided uh, it's less than fifty two minutes from now, because I, I do have a meeting to run into. Post sabbatical, right? You've got meetings. What are you doing? Post sabbatical. All right. So an so, obedience text. Abraham was supposed to obey God and do what? Kill his son, and not supposed to. Abraham does, and the the context to this makes the story even more powerful. So many people know, you know, and. Most non-Jews are aware of this story. If you know anyone has ever taken a Bible class or an introduction to religion class, especially as this story is incredibly powerful in both Christianity and Islam, that Abraham, the first Jew, the person who God first makes the covenant, 
after that, or as part of that, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his firstborn. And then as a parenthetical comment, God says, it's at, to be clear, the parenthetical comment is in the Torah. I'm not making this up. God says, take your first son, your favored one, whom you love. And so it adds this emotional resonance to what God is asking Abraham. And Abraham rushes to do it. Um, I think we've talked about the art or science, depending on perspective of Torah interpretation before, and the, the idea that God wrote the Torah and every word is placed there perfectly and must mean something. And so if there's a word there that seems extraneous or extra or a mistake, it actually can't be. And it's our understanding that's mistaken. And so uh, there's a famous example of that where immediately after God commands Abraham to do this. The verse says, and I'll put the uh, the links to these verses in our show notes. It's Genesis chapter 22. So early next morning, Abraham saddled his ass and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. What's with this early next morning? Why does the Torah need to add? It's, it's a literal flourish or a literary flourish that is seemingly unneeded. But our commenters say that Abraham rushed to obey God. It's like when you're so excited. I mean, I, I felt this way sometimes about, you know, my wife's birthday or maybe our anniversary that I, you know, I want to do something sweet and thoughtful, again, in my best self, as early as possible in the day, right? To get the day started off on the right foot. And here, Abraham wants to obey God. What a lot of people don't understand about this story from the Torah's perspective, not from my perspective, is that Abraham does not want to sacrifice his son. And that's the, that is the power of this story. It's not like God is commanding Abraham to do something that he would otherwise already do. So there's this tension between Abraham's self-interests, namely his love for his son, as God willing all parents have for their children, and on the other hand, this command from God. And Abraham, without questioning God, God's motives, God's methods, just does it. And this, of course, is in stark comparison to earlier, I'm sorry, to later, when God uh, tells Abraham that these two cities are going to be destroyed because of the wickedness of the people living in the cities, namely Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham challenges God in this awesome way. Abraham says, well, will you sacrifice the righteous along with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous souls? And God says, okay, if there's 50, I'll save it. And on and on. And Abraham successfully argues for God to uh, keep the cities if there are 10 righteous people. Now, it turns out there weren't and God destroys them. But that here God argues, I'm sorry, Abraham argues for strangers, but doesn't do so for his own beloved son. And gosh, if there's anything more troubling in the Torah, I don't know what it is. Adding to this is the fact that this Torah portion is what we chant on one of the holiest days of our year, namely the, I've mentioned the high holidays before, namely Rosh Hashanah. 
one reason for that is because, as many know, uh, eventually, so, and the story is written with such, a, it could almost be a movie, the, the way it builds suspense and, and fear, that Abraham lifts up the knife to sacrifice Isaac, and an angel comes down from the sky, an angel's voice, namely God's voice, comes down and says, Abraham, Abraham. And here again, we see a word repeated. Why is the word repeated? Because our tradition tells us that Abraham was so focused on doing God's command that he didn't even hear God's own voice telling him to stop. And so the angel had to say it a second time. Abraham looks up, which is a beautiful trope in the Torah, lifting up one's eyes, that's for another podcast, and sees a ram, sacrifices the ram instead of Isaac, and the ram's horn, the shofar, is what we blow on Rosh Hashanah. So there's all these resonances and references between creation and family and obedience, and gosh, is it problematic. And ultimately, and I'll stop here, for now. Ultimately, Judaism says that Abraham passed the test. And there's this Midrash, this Jewish story that God presented Abraham with 10 tests throughout his life. One of them actually was his circumcision. And it culminates in this, in this of sacrificing his own son. And I say, no, Abraham failed the test by not questioning or arguing with God. And um, I gave that sermon a few years ago. Uh, so those are my initial thoughts on this, in some ways, quintessential story of obedience, um, but also highly problem problematic. Oh, I do have one last thing to say, which is it's hard to talk about the story without talk without mentioning the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who wrote on this story, and he coined this beautiful phrase: the teleological suspension of the ethical. And in many ways, when one obeys God to do something that they don't want to do, or more to the point, really, does something that they know they shouldn't do, they are suspending what they know to be ethically correct in order to serve a different purpose, namely obedience to God. And that's where you're going to stop with the Kierkegaard quote. Wow. Whew. Um, so how do all the Midrashim deal with it? What are some of the options? Um, you put in there, Abraham failed the test because he wasn't, he was so obedient to the last command of God, he missed the next or the current command of God and did great harm to his relationship with Isaac permanently. If I remember, Abraham goes down the mountain one way, Isaac goes down another, and we don't know if they ever speak to one another again. Um, so how how does this... And to if I could just follow up on that for a moment, I'm sorry, Joel. Uh, you know, we've talked about Jacob and Esau before, that Jacob steals the birthright from Esau. He does that by convincing his dad, Isaac, that he is Esau. And there is a Midrash that suggests that Isaac was blind from the trauma of this incident. I, I can imagine that. So what are some of the other solutions uh, that that those who have dealt with this text for, geez, thousands of years have come up with to try to shove the problem into a place that's manageable. That's what's kind of fascinating is there are no midrashim that I am aware of. Now, by no means does that 
not mean that they exist. That tries to do, and uh, I think I may have said this either in last week's episode or on a conversation with a friend, but there's this concept, Sidu Kadin. Did I talk about that, Joel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so where, where we take something that seems problematic or unfair and we twist it so that it kind of, it does make sense or can make sense. And I, most of the commentary on this just take God's command and Abraham's action at face value. And lauding Abraham. I mean, I, I don't know of any Midrash that's not modern, that's not like, you know, me on the Bema saying Abraham failed the test, that suggests that Abraham did anything wrong. And, you know, there's the idea that, well, Abraham had faith that God would stop it at the last minute because Abraham had such a special relationship with God, or God knew that Abraham wouldn't even until that last moment, it wouldn't happen. So there's things like that. Um, there is also a midrash that Abraham actually did kill Isaac, which is a, and then that's linked to the reason why Isaac is so silent, so to speak, throughout the rest of the Torah. Um, but nothing that I think would make us feel better, <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, how do you deal with this story, or or Christianity in general? Christianity is based on the story of a father who sacrifices his own son. When you talk about the Christ, uh, the anointed one, uh, especially in a triune God sphere, where we know this one God in three personas, three persons, the God, the creator, the God, the Christ, and God, the spirit. Um, But it's the same God, and the dance that these three do that appears as one is sometimes called perichoresis. So we imagine inside this oneness of God, the persona of God that is the Son, the Christ, the begotten, is sacrificed by the Creator God, the Father God, the Parent God. And there is no holding back there. There is no messenger that stops the crucifixion. Um, it, It plays through. So while some Christians will talk about um, the connection between Abraham Isaac and God Christ, we, we will some Christians will talk about Abraham Isaac as an experiment that God ran on humanity to see how humanity would respond to it, and as a test God was running on God's own self to see how God might one day Mm. experience it. It, To watch a father try to do this to your own begotten son was um, a Tuskegee experiment that God was running, uh, torturing humanity to find out something before God did it to God's own self. Now, you can see all the theological pitfalls and holes and stuff going on here. Sure. So um, there is a bit of a difference, and we have to draw that with the problematic text of this. Um, Christ's obedience to the cross is perceived by some as Christ obeying God's will, as if the cross itself is God's will for Christ. Um as if God brought Jesus into the world to die. 
and that was Jesus's main purpose, to die. And there's a lot of veins of Christianity that do speak of Jesus of Nazareth in that way. He was brought into the world to die. Why? Because we needed somebody to prove to us that death doesn't have the last word, and we needed somebody to suffer the consequences of sin, death, for us so that we wouldn't have to. Uh, That's the shortcut, simplistic Christian viewpoint to this obedience question. For me, the obedience of Abraham, okay, you think you've heard a voice of God to sacrifice your own son, and you begin doing things just in case that is the voice of God. The fact that the messenger had to bark at him a couple times before Isaac is put on the altar and the knife is raised, to me, that's evidence that Abraham misunderstood the calling in the first place. And Abraham should have taken Isaac up the hill to make a sacrifice, but should not have sacrificed Isaac. Should have gone up the hill and shown Isaac how to sacrifice the ram he finds up there, but should have never placed Isaac on the wood or the altar, should have never raised his knife over Isaac in the first place. And I just imagine the fear in God when God senses Abraham's instantaneous literal obedience to what he thought was the command of God when there's a friggin' ram in the bush the whole time. That's what you were supposed to do, Abraham, not scare the stew out of your son and ruin that relationship forever. And I think Jesus is in the same boat. God does bring Jesus into the world to show us how to live and to show us what what God's fulfillment looks like in humanity and what it really looks like to honor the commandments of God in, in the flesh. But we mishear that and kill Jesus. And it wasn't God's intention to, that Jesus had to die. Jesus is going to die. He's fully human. He's going to live to an old age and die and then be born again. But we kill him early because we so miscomprehend the will and the words of God in Jesus that we kill it rather than obey it. Yeah, yeah, you alluded to that last yeah. week, uh, <laughs> the, that humanity killed Jesus, not God, from your theology, which... which which is a reframe that I find powerful. You know, the, the trouble for me then, it, it, it's yet beyond this story, is then, well, when do we know what we should obey and what we miss here? And this is where self and ego come into play of it's easy to obey the things that we already do want to follow. And again, from a traditional standpoint, as I said, but it bears repeating, that's what makes what we call the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, so powerful is that Abraham absolutely did not want to do it. Um, but when when I read the Torah and I go through these 613 meets votes, how do I as a person, as a community, as Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, meaning all Jews, not people that live in the country of Israel, how do we decide what is obeying and what we just do out of who we are as our own selves? 
and and how do you like uh, as a community? Well, I was hoping right? you had an answer to that, John. Well, I do, <laughs> but so do you. Um, you know, as religious leaders in religious communities, that's kind of the purpose of us gathering together. Like we come together around this God we claim to kind of know, and these words of God that we think we understand fairly well, and we read and remember them and discuss them over and over again. And in so doing, we hope to encourage one another to have courage to obey when obeying will be hard and resisted, um, and to correct one another when we arrogantly misunderstand and begin obeying in such a way that it actually does harm to God's kingdom. But we're doing it because we heard God say, and we're absolutely sure, so we're going to obey now, and we're just <laughs> doing harm all around us. And the community slows those people down, right, and brings them back so they can obey without spreading harm everywhere. And the community also is supposed to accelerate those who are afraid to obey just because it might hurt them or be they might face resistance or ridicule if they obey too much. And uh, yes, I, I I also think, you know, we, I don't, I'm not sure if we've talked about this before, but in Judaism, there, there's a premium placed on the concept of a minion, which is a community of 10, at least 10 Jews being together. And so for me, and I didn't, I didn't make up this expression, but I use it a lot, is it, being in community and not a cognitive minority of one is crucial. So in other words, sure, I can decide kind of on my own what to follow and what not to follow. But when it comes to a community, in some ways, we need to do that together. And, um, and that this is another reason why I call myself a Reformed Jew, because that is a continual process. That doesn't just happen and then we're done. Um, but it is tricky to, to figure out, okay, sometimes we don't want to do something because we're lazy. It takes too much effort. And sometimes it's something we legitimately think is immoral and wrong. And in many ways, those are the easiest to say no. So God commanding someone to sacrifice their child, that's immoral. Not going to do it. Uh, having some sort of, um, not prejudice, but but considering people who are gay, quote unquote, less than because of their sexual preference. We are not going to follow that law because we find that immoral. Uh, and when I say we, I mean me and you. I don't, unfortunately, not everyone agrees with us. But um, but the, the point is, is that those things change over generations and over time. And so we constantly have to re-engage re and re-engage in that process. This is where it gets a little tough on folks, but I try to tell them, if we have new visitors or people who are joining the church from whatever former Christian way or non-Christian way, but they're willing to talk about God and wonder and, and they find this community okay and they're willing to do that with us for a while, I try to remind them, of course you enter this place as an individual. You will always have individual thoughts and feelings and leanings. You'll always have individual morals and ethics and opinions. Nobody here is going to demand that you lay those down and sacrifice those senses of what is true, what is right, what is best 
in favor of what the community votes is true or right or best. But here's what happens. When you enter this community, you promise to negotiate it. You, mm. you pledge and promise to say out loud what you think, feel, believe, to listen when others say out loud what they think, feel, and believe, and you promise to debate and negotiate that. And that's the hard part. Some people don't want to do that. They feel very defensive of their personal sense of moral or ethics or theology, and they don't like it when others have a different one, or they ask them questions, or they even challenge them. But the reason for church is to keep us from putting our son on an altar and raising a knife over his throat. The purpose of church is to keep us from killing Jesus again. We already did it once, and we don't want to do it again. So we're going to show up here. We're going to read these texts. We're going to say what we think we hear God calling us to do or not do, to risk or to not risk, and we're going to debate it with one another. And then at some point, our duly elected minion, (laughs) the leadership of the church, what we call the session, are going to discern and debate for us which way to go, and we're going to trust them and go with them. And they might be wrong. And if so, we'll, we'll change direction and we'll elect some different people, or they might be right. I, I tend to look for the actions that require self-sacrifice, self-effort, um, even ridicule of the self from the greater community and for the greater good. Those probably are truly faithful. And Jesus talks a lot about, hey, when you obey me, when you really follow me, the world might hate you for it. So just because the world bucks and screams and fights and hates and resists when we're trying to do something good for others, that doesn't mean we're off track. But if we find that we're doing something that causes harm to others in the name of God, not discomfort, not um, we're trying to tear down a Confederate statue and some people are really mad about it. Um, it's probably still the right thing to tear that statue down, and we're going to get hated for it, but do it anyway. Uh, but when we're doing harm to others, uh, that's we need to slow down and pause. It's just the definition of harm. Um, sometimes the consequences of obedience is harm to others, and sometimes the consequences of obedience is justice for others and how to— Or to yourself, right? Yeah, and how to differentiate so- those. And, and this is a huge topic in Judaism as the, the translation of mitzvot, these 613 laws that we have, are commandments. You know, we joke sometimes in the reform movement that, you know, we might live like there are the suggestions, but our tradition tells us that they're commandments. And even if we don't follow some of them, and even if we don't purposefully follow some of them. I still think we have to take that concept seriously, even if we end up disregarding it to a certain degree. Um, but that, that tension is always there. In our denomination, in our constitution, we have some theological documents and just some structure documents, how to organize church. And there's this in the preface, they say, you'll see three words. You'll see sometimes shall, other times should, 
and other times may. And they try to differentiate those to say that when we tell you shall, you gotta. When we tell you should, boy, y'all should strongly consider it and have a very good reason if you don't. And if you say may, we're just giving you some options. When I read now, the you shall not get a tattoo, you shall not wear mixed clothing, you shall not kill, you shall not lie, right? All of those are mitzvot. They're all commandments, but some are clearly shalls. And then, and we as a community make the decision together, which of those are shalls. And then we make the decision as a community, which one are shoulds. We should remember that one. Every now and then we won't, but we should. In our normal day, in a normal routine, we should remember that one. And then there's the mites and mays. You may. Yeah, if that one helps you get feel closer to God and do good in the world, please obey that one. But don't judge others when they don't. That one's not a shall for this community. And my guess is Reform Judaism has taken that 600 plus and in some way divided them out in the requireds, the emphasized. Well, there's actually, the in some ways, the Torah has done that for us to a degree. So the, the Torah makes two categorizations of the mitzvot with two different Hebrew words. And of course, they can't mean the same thing because if they meant the same thing, there'd be one word because the Torah is perfect. So uh, <laughs> see, we're having a meta commentary. English was Torah. like that. <laughs> That's right. So the two words are mishpatim and chukim, both of which mean laws or commands. Um, but because they both appear in the Torah, uh, a mishpat, mishpatim is the plural, is kind of the, the law that makes moral, rational sense. And the chukim are amoral laws, not immoral, but amoral. So, you know, wearing wool and linen on your body, the prohibition, rather, of wearing wool and linen is an amoral mitzvah. It doesn't hurt you if I do it. It doesn't help you if I do it. It's amoral. Um, Now, some of those are actually immoral, such as a man shall not lie with another man. But um, Reformed Judaism definitely prefers in terms of where where most of the actions are that mishpatim well the hard part about commandments is isn't just obeying them themselves it's also obeying the prescribed consequence for disobedience that's like if you say um thou shall not commit adultery okay that's going to be a shall command for me i am not going to do that and Thou shall stone anybody you catch doing it. Uh-uh. I'm not doing the back half of that one. Is that one command or two? And if I break the second <laughs> one, am I also breaking the first one? That's a great question. I mean, what's interesting from a Jewish perspective on that is very rarely does God say the reward or punishment for following a particular commandment. There are occasions when it's done, and I have a whole lesson on that. Not for now. Um, so do a lot of actually- hard right conservative corner Christians. They use the uh, the English word abomination, which is attached right. to some Hebrew commandments, and they perceive that to be the most immoral uh, commands. Uh, so if we break right. them, it's the greatest danger, it's the greatest offense to God. Therefore, the command and the punishment are supposed to be taken more literally. And those Christians scare the stew out of me. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes, as in yes, I know they do, and me also. I don't want to uh, end early if there's more to say, but I, I think our listeners and I <laughs> would love to hear the story of uh, your biblical uh, historicity conversation. <laughs> so there's a theory, y'all. Uh, if No matter who you are, if you are a scholarly reader of the original texts, then you might have heard of a theory that was developed, gosh, a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, 15, 1600s, maybe before that, where the— It didn't gain prominence till—it actually—it gained prominence fairly recently. I want to say 1900s, but— Yes. Yeah, sorry. That's perfect. It really—some say it came from the Reformation of the Christian Church when we stopped reading the Latin and we started going back to the original languages. And and when we did that, in rebellion of high church leadership, we discovered in the original text, both the Hebrew and the Greek, that there was often differences in the word that was used to for the name of God or in reference to God or the literary styles that were used. Um, and so let's just look at Torah only for a minute, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books. Some say that there are some old, old stories that referred to a singular God, the God who is, the God whose name is I am. And those of us who are Christians grab the Hebrew letters for that and mangle it into the um, transliterated word Jehovah. But my my friend, the rabbi here, who I'm trying to respect even as I have this conversation, will see that word for God in the Hebrew and just quickly say Adonai, skip right past it. And in English Bibles, we'll often uh, translate it as Lord, all caps, so we don't say the name of God. Those who are in that zone, uh, well, let's call them the J's, <laughs> they, the Jehovahists or whatever, they wrote a chunk of the old stories. The Elohists referred to God as Elohim, and that was kind of the plural God, the God council. Then there were the Deuteronomists, the people who cared about how we live, and they had moral codes, and they taught us what was important when we were a community of people on this planet in order to obey God, this is how we'll live. And then there were the priests who taught us how to worship our relationship, not with one another as much, but with God, what it looks like to worship God and to love God and to serve God and make offerings to God. So we have a J, an E, a D, and a P. And those four perspectives came together over time and became scripture. Now, what I love about this theory, whether or not it's true, is if you look in our polarized world today, there are a lot of people who think they have to obey their parties or their theologies or their denominations perspective on who God is how to worship God the right way, how to treat others or not treat others the right way. But the model of Scripture itself is, no, we're going to take you and y'all and those folk and these folk, we're going to shove them all in one big room, and we're going to force each other to listen to each other's stories, the yeses and the nos, the rights and the wrongs, the obeys and the considers. And scripture is the conglomeration of all that. 
And if we say God wrote slash inspired all of that, then I love that. It's saying that God is forcing us to listen and discuss and debate and discern with one another what real holy obedience looks like. And none of us have it right, right? But all of us have something that the others need to listen to. And all of us have something we need to have corrected in us. So I, it's scripture to me and church are very similar. You, you bring these different stories together, you share them, and you pray with God's help. You'll discern something that's more beautiful, more holy, more true. And what Joel just uh, talked about is, is sometimes referred to as the documentary hypothesis. Um, there's also a specific German phrase uh, that I don't want to butcher, so I'll save it for the show notes. Um, th- that, like Joel said, anyone who s- studies religion from a scholarly perspective knows of this. What's interesting sometimes is there are, I certainly know of Jews who f- with all of their heart, believe that God singularly wrote the Torah, but they study the documentary hypothesis from a kind of intellectual context, which is kind of an interesting tension. Um, In a small world story, um, one of my congregants here in Athens literally wrote the book on this. It's called Who Wrote the Bible? Uh, It's a book, I see Joel nodding his head, Anyone that went to Hebrew Union College probably has this on their shelves, if not more than one copy. Uh, like I said, Who Wrote the Bible by Dr. Richard Elliott Friedman. I'll, I'll put a note in the in the or in the show notes. I'll, I'll put it. Um, but if you're at all interested in kind of the, what Joel just mentioned, you, you should check it out because it's an important thing uh, to have in your toolkit for the understanding and interpretation of Bible, Torah, text, etc. And it doesn't it, – it's not meant to talk like this about Scripture and, and how Scripture came together. It's not meant to poo-poo the commandments that we believe God inspired or suggested or said. It is meant to look at how those commandments get embodied through us. And there's always a debate and discernment and discussion with one another so that we don't arrogantly arrogantly march up a hill and scare our child away for life. Um, there, If Abraham had a community when God told him to sacrifice his only son, you know, the one you love, my guess is that community would have said, now, now wait a minute, tell us more. What do you mean by that? Why, why did you hear that, that way? Um, could it have been? Could it have been? Could it have been? Can we go with you? As, as you do this. And if Abraham had gone up the hill, instead of leaving his servants and his family and others down at the bottom of the hill, why, if he had just brought them up there, one of them would have gotten to the top and said, hey, boss, look, there's a ram in the thicket. Maybe that's what God meant. And Isaac would have been, oh, daddy, is that what we're doing today? We're sacrificing a ram? And they would have loved each other for the rest of time. But Abraham went up the hill by himself, right, yanking his son by the arm. And the harm done was irreparable. I just have one last question, Joel. What are you doing on Rosh Hashanah morning, and are you available to preach? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, I might be. Yes, I I, I could be. (laughs) Uh, Well, it is good to talk. about 
even difficult topics with you, my friend, and I look forward to next week. Yeah, you too. And what are you doing on World Communion Sunday, October, the first Sunday of October? And are you available to to co-preach with me? That might be right around uh, Yom Kippur. Hang on a second. Oh, no, October 1st? Very possibly. Yeah, call me. Okay, and same for you. If you're serious about that, it might be fun to take our podcast live into sanctuaries and and temples. We we definitely should do. We actually should do something. Actually, yeah, let's definitely talk offline about that for sure. <laughs> Blessings on you, brother. See you soon. You too, and shalom to everyone else. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to realreligionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.